Welcome to the IVF Journey with Dr. Michael Chapman, the podcast for couples who struggle with infertility and want to fulfill their dreams of becoming parents. In this podcast, you'll learn actionable strategies to deal with infertility from Dr. Michael Chapman, or Prof as he's affectionately known. Prof is the co-founder of IVF Australia and is a leading Australian infertility specialist who has helped over 3,000 couples realise their dreams of becoming parents. To access previous episodes packed with ideas, solutions and tips that actually work, head over to Dr. Chapman's IVF podcast on iTunes. You can also ask questions by contacting Dr. Chapman's rooms on 1-800-111-483 or by emailing him michael.chapman at ivf.com.au. That first cry of a baby born after the long journey of IVF remains one of the most beautiful experiences in the world. As an obstetrician and an IVF specialist, I've had the privilege of experiencing this over many thousands of times in my long career, but I still remain moved by each baby's first cry. It signifies the end of a long journey and the beginning of a new life. This is Professor Michael Chapman, co-founder of IVF Australia and host of the IVF Journey podcast. Thanks for tuning in. To access all the previous episodes, head over to my website, www.theivfjourney.com and select IVF Journey Podcast from the navigation menu. You'll also be able to find the various services that we provide at IVF Australia. So today we're going to talk about some of the current issues that have been in the media this week. A fantastic landmark for IVF occurred on... uh, Wednesday, which was the 25th of July, and that marks the 40th birthday of the first IVF baby in the world, Louise Brown. She was born in the United Kingdom in um, 1978. She herself has subsequently had a daughter who subsequently also had a child, but at the time she was the first. She was the first after many, many years of trying. The group of Steptoe and Edwards Professor Edwards, in fact, won a Nobel Prize for his work, Embryology of IVF. But they'd been working since the late 60s on attempting to create human embryos to implant in the woman. And in those days, the indication was only one, which was blocked fallopian tubes, so natural conception couldn't occur. Interestingly, subsequent to the front-page news, a number of senior gynaecologists in the United Kingdom actually were quite negative about the result and and claimed that it was fake. The woman actually had open tubes and she'd conceived spontaneously. It also brought from the church a tirade of abuse about playing God and interfering with nature. It was a very controversial time. Today, however, we've come a long way with IVF being accepted as a regular medical treatment for couples and individuals who are having problems conceiving a baby. When I first got into IVF, it was in 1985, which was some five or six years after Louise Brown's birth, there were still only a few thousand babies born around the world. 
there are now over 7 million babies born through IVF around the world. When I first started, we, I was telling patients that their odds of success were somewhere between 5 and 10% per month. I'm now saying 35 to 40% per month. That's how much technology has moved forward. Times have moved forward, science has got better. More and more people are seeking IVF. In Australia, over 40,000 cycles of IVF are done every year. Something in the order of 15 or 16,000 women set off on the journey for the first time. One of the other issues this week has been raised through a senator in the upper house of the federal parliament who's calling for clinics to reveal their success rates. Supposedly, this is to allow individuals to find the best clinic. And certainly, there is a range of success which varies from year to year to clinic to clinic. There's a problem, however, in comparing what are supposed success rates. Many things contribute to a clinic's success rate. Let's start with the ages of the patients. So if clinic A has 40% of its patients over 40 and clinic B has only 20% of their patients over 40, obviously with what I've said on many occasions in relation to age and equality, clinic A will have a much lower pregnancy rate apparently than clinic B. It won't be because they're any worse or any better, it's because of the age distribution. Next, there are clinics because of the expertise of the fertility specialist that is well known. Couples with more difficult problems who failed perhaps at another clinic on a number of occasions will come to that particular clinic because they've heard that that particular specialist is extremely good. However, a bad prognosis patient is a bad prognosis patient and no matter how good the clinic is, it doesn't necessarily mean that the standard of the clinic is low because the success rates are low. It's the type of patient that's being treated. So the patients that come to a particular clinic do affect their pregnancy rates. The next issue is how many embryos get put back. And if a clinic putting two embryos back, it's going to have a higher success rate, but it will also have a higher twins rate. And some recent data I've, I've been reviewing suggests that with twins, there's almost four times the risk of having a baby die from twins and more than four times chance of cerebral palsy because of prematurity. So good medicine says you should put one embryo back. So putting two to improve your pregnancy rates on a league table is actually creating bad medicine. The stage at which embryos are put back is also an issue. Back in 1985, all the way through, in fact, till almost 2000, we were putting back embryos on day two, three. Many of those day two, three embryos actually were embryos that would never make it even to implantation, never grow in the uterus until day five. But they counted as the denominator and therefore the success rates were relatively poor. Once we started using blastocysts and growing to day five, we'd culled out those embryos. So the blastocyst clearly produces a better pregnancy rate. So a clinic that works predominantly with blastocysts is going to appear to have a higher pregnancy rate than those that work on cleavage. 
But in fact, their science may be exactly the same. Their cumulative pregnancy rate, because you have more embryos to put back at a cleavage stage, if you have cycle after cycle of frozen cleavages, you will eventually catch up. But that's not reflected in league tables. Other factors do come into account. There are populations where pollution is a more significant issue than in others. There's issues around lifestyle of patients. You know, if you have a population with more obese patients coming to your clinic because you're in the western suburbs of Sydney, your pregnancy rate's likely to be lower in the higher socioeconomic non-obese group. So there are a whole multiple raft of things that can influence success rates that aren't necessarily reflective of the quality of the laboratory. It's on this basis that Fertility Society of Australia has taken a view that league tables are not appropriate, particularly on the raw data that we currently are collecting. What we believe is more important than uh, comparing clinics is that individual patients can work out for themselves what their chances of success are given their age and a whole range of issues around their potential fertility and factors that would affect their fertility. So we're working towards a predictor model in an attempt to allow patients to find out what their own chances of success are, whatever the clinic. We do know some clinics have bad years and that quality control is actually monitored closely by our Reproductive Technology Accreditation Committee, and certainly those in the lower group are uh, investigated and corrective actions implemented to improve their success rates. But when we look at graphs that compare clinics in our own internal ANZAR database, we actually don't find statistically significant differences very often, that no clinic is really statistically hugely better than any other and it is rare that a clinic is performing badly on a regular basis. That's our impression from the data, and we certainly are concerned that if there are poor performing clinics, we do deal with them. We now have systems in place to do that. Senator in the high upper house of the federal parliament, it sounds simplistic to call for league tables, but we believe that you can't compare apples with oranges and more importantly if we started to compare apples with oranges people fiddle it induces clinics to do things that are bad medicine there are two countries in the world that do publish league tables the united kingdom is one example and what they found is that their multiple pregnancy has remained high because clinics are scared of dropping their pregnancy rates i.e. dropping down the ladder, if they don't put two embryos back. In the United States, the problem with the league tables is that some clinics, because it's a voluntary system in the US, unlike Australia where it's compulsory to report data, in a voluntary system, some clinics have been caught out, not actually entering patients who are of poor prognosis on the basis that it would lower their apparent league table status. So league tables are by no means a way forward. One has to place a degree of trust in your local clinic, but it's important to ask the right questions because it's your chance of a pregnancy in that clinic 
that's the most important issue. And don't forget that you can access all the previous episodes by going to our website www.theivfjourney.com and select IVF Journey Podcast from the navigation menu. Thank you for listening to The IVF Journey with Dr. Michael Chapman, the podcast which helps couples negotiate their way through the IVF journey all the way to parenthood. You can also ask questions by contacting Dr. Chapman's rooms on 1800 483 or by emailing him michael.chapman at ivf.com.au.